Good afternoon, everybody. This is John Barrows with Make It Happen Mondays. Hopefully, y'all doing well. Had a good time over the weekend. Got to relax a bit and recharged for the week. Um, very excited to introduce my guest today, Scott Crawford. Scott, why don't you introduce yourself and tell everybody where you're coming from? Maybe get a little background of how we know each other here. Absolutely. Thank you, John. Uh, great to be here. I appreciate it. And uh, we got to know each other through a gentleman by the name of Jeff Hoffman. I'll get to that in a second. So my background is the last four years I've been doing consulting, and that's gone everything from sales strategy down to the nitty-gritty operations and how do you execute on the email John Barrow style. Um, and before that, I've been working in uh, technology sales for 25 years. I've done it here in the U.S. I've done it in Asia. I've done it in Europe. Um, started out selling what are now old and dusty IBM mainframes <laughs> to the latest and greatest uh, pass and SaaS platforms. So I pretty much have seen the evolution of technologies and with that, all the different iterations of, um, of sales models. Um, and with that, all the different techniques to, to train. I remember when I started out my first sales job in IBM, I had the big floppy disk that I put in and they had these role plays that you would do by yourself <laughs> in the formal. Yeah. And so it's certainly evolved uh, over the years to a much more collaborative uh, type of approaches. And there's a specific case that I'll get to where uh, your approach in specific was of particular um, use and very valuable. Love it. Yes. So, um, that, that particular one um, just finished up, worked with them for well over a year. And we can, uh, we can do a deep dive on, on that and how it applies to ramping a team and, and leveraging an enablement to get them to that point of productivity. Yeah, so, so let's talk about that because I think I think the you know one of the things I've always done, you know, I don't know whether it's because growing up in Boston or whatever, but you know, East Coast West Coast stuff, you know, startups and all that stuff on the West Coast, and you know, I, I still to this day cringe about how much money is being dumped into some of these startups who are in these evaluations and of all this other stuff, and so a lot of times. You know, a lot of these tech companies that I work with, they, they're, they're shitting money. You know what I mean? They're literally like, yep, we just got $100 million in funding. How do we spend it type of scenario? So they got no problems investing in all these whatever, which is a whole different story, right? But, but what I've, I've always been focused on is, 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 is doing way more with way less, right? Like how can I do basically – because there's so much information out there right now. It, that if you just gave a shit and if you just spent some time, you could actually put together something for free. I mean, I always use the analogy that you could literally today go get a Harvard education for free. A hundred percent, you could get educated on the exact same things that, that people spend $50,000 a year on or more or whatever they're charging these days. You could get it for free. Now, you're not going to get the degree, but you could get the same exact ed education if you took a couple of minutes to actually sit down and, and, and go through the content that time. So with that, with the, the, the kind of the umbrella conversation today is, say you are a, a company that's growing like a weed right now, but you don't have funding. Maybe you're self-funded, you know, you don't have resources. How do you scale, hire, scale, and onboard sales reps specifically um, and the do's and don'ts of that approach? So can you kind of give us, you know, your thought process around when you come in, you consulted with a bunch of companies, you've worked with a bunch of companies. When you come into a scenario and you you you're on a rocket ship right now, how do you build while riding that rocket ship without wasting a shitload of time, money, and energy uh, along the way? Yeah, great question. And in fact, this company um, was—I'll just say—I can't tell you what where they were in terms of AR, but let's just say they're well into the eight figures of AR and growing at a, a decent clip before really investing much in sales and marketing. Great product market fit, and it was the best rocket fuel that you could find. Yep. But they eventually got to a point where they needed to put in the infrastructure for marketing, the infrastructure for sales. And while they had the resources in terms of being a profitable company and having the, uh, the, the money resources, very, very short on all the other constraints. And in this particular case, if you take, I'm going to go from five reps to 25 reps in a matter of two months, and I'm going to go from one inbound SDR to five outbound or five in the five inbound SDRs, eight outbound BDRs in that same period of time, you're going to have all of the same challenges that you would have in the U.S. This particular company had that team in Mumbai. So oh. here I am wearing a VP of sales hat in San Francisco and being able to spend maybe one third of my time in Mumbai. And then we'll get into these challenges. But typically when you do sales enablement of any flavor, it's relatively easy to put that skill into place and get a certification done. The magic happens when you leave 
And if you leave on an Emirates flight, <laughs> that takes you, as you know, you did Chennai with Freshworks recently. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just getting there and back kills a lot of time. But then that gap in between when you come back, it'll look like nothing ever happened unless you put something in place to, uh, to make it happen. And so I learned, really, really, actually, I should say, I relearned some really good lessons about what happens in really good enablement. But more importantly, how do you make it stick? Right. And how do you make it stick in this case when they're half a world away? And then with all that hiring, they didn't, we didn't think in advance of putting in an effective management layer. And as you well know, it ultimately comes down to first line manager job to make that enablement happen every single day and then ultimately see the results of why you made that investment. So I'll back up a little bit. I met Jeff uh, uh, last time I had a real job as a VP of, of sales. And Jeff came through one of his um, seminars in San Francisco, one of the public ones where he's got 30, 40 people in the room and he does his magic. And I was a bit skeptical, but it looked like it was on point to help my team really focus on how to do prospecting. And so wrote him and said, hey, I'm going to send 13 people in here. You mind if I sit in the back and just observe and make sure my team's sitting up front, asking questions, raising their hand, at least getting that first part done. And it was great. It, uh, I fell in love with Jeff's approaches. And subsequently, I had him, I think, at every QBR and sales kickoff after that. And after I left, they continued to leverage Jeff. So fast forward to this company, I'm looking at the same challenge. And I'm thinking, you know, I can do this type of enablement by myself. I know how to teach them how to do an email. And I did. Um, I knew how to teach them how to make the phone call. And I did. Um, part of the problem was the consistency of hearing that message. And I think I shared this story with you before. The other part was I was doing so much enablement across the board. I mean, the sales book that I had to build and train with everything from the overall market to the product down to how to use Salesforce to the selling skills, that whole thing. So it was a huge load. And so I needed every little bit of help I could along the way to not only do more effective uh, coaching on specific areas, but to reinforce it time and again. So I wrote to Jeff and I said, hey, do you do anything like come to India or do you have any kind of on land? And he said, no, I don't, but I know this guy, John. Um, and I, again, I was skeptical. I was like, okay, you know this guy, John, but is, does he do what you do? And it turns out you guys are, are twins. <laughs> and uh, I'll get to the, yeah, I'll just, I'll give you the punchline now. The online training was just fantastic. Um, but, but one of the keys was um, this happened with Jeff um, uh, at, a, at one of my other clients before I got to this one. We were doing, uh, I was doing email training and I would teach them here are the three sections of the email. Here's your sales trigger, make it relevant to them and then make it relevant to your company. And here's the, who do I talk to? How do I get on your calendar? And I did that over and over and I would go and say, hey, you're not using this. We finally had Jeff come through San Francisco and I just sent them to this. And all of a sudden, I was in a one-on-one -on -one with this one rep, the manager, and she's like, I'm using this new sales, uh, this new email technique. It's working great. And I was like, you know, I taught that to you two months ago. I was like, no, I don't think you did. And I pulled up my, uh, my lunch and learn. It's like, here it is right here. And she's like, well, it just sounded better when Jeff said it. <laughs> so just having a different voice say the same thing goes a long way. And so that was one of the elements of being able to leverage um, not just the expertise, but somebody who has the passion that you have, somebody that does it over and over and over again, and somebody that isn't the same screeching voice to say, do an email this way, do your Salesforce this way, do your other components every single day. Yeah, it's like being a parent, right? It's like you can tell your kids until you're blue in the face, and then all of a sudden their friend or their friend's mother says something, and they're like, oh, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And you're like, what the, whatever. <laughs> Just as long as you get it, I don't really give a shit, right? So <laughs> Exactly. You have all the credit in the world. Yeah. So, yeah, just a lot of built-in constraints that you would normally have going at that breakneck speed and getting folks up to a predictive uh, level of selling. And, um, and then the other part I mentioned was just having brand new managers. And it wasn't that they were new to the role. It was the first time they ever managed. So I'm mentoring them also on the basics, the ABCs of how to be a good sales manager, ultimately a sales leader, and then coaching them on, on how to put things in place. And um, you know, as well as anybody, we'll go back to the point of, okay, we did the Barrows training. And I was amazed, by the way, how many times I, I had to go back and tell them to, hey, this is on your calendar, get it done. One difference between having you and, uh, or somebody like Jeff show up, it's easy to get the button to see, participate. With the online training, I think it's almost too convenient. 
Yeah. It's sitting there for a three-day period, and it's like, hey, guys, you're on hour number 70, and you've got two hours left. Let's get it done. And you have to light that fire. So I had to go through those kind of motions with some of the reps. But the good thing is you have a platform, um, and other platforms work like this in sales enablement, where you've got the stats, you've got the metrics, and ultimately you can collaborate around that as well. So there's a lot of benefits that, that override that, uh, that convenience factor where they could sit on it. And, um, but back to the managers, uh, getting them to coach and some of the techniques that we use that were really well, which is very good, basic blocking and tackling that you should do anyways. I had them do a daily standup as a team. So I had three different managers, three different teams of sales, one inbound team, one outbound team. And at the end of every day, they would get together and just talk about what's working well, what isn't. And I made sure part of that agenda was, okay, you just had this uh, training on how to write an email. Let's talk about how that's working. How many did you get out? Let's pull up a couple of examples, what's working, what's not. And that probably more than anything really helped drive home and emphasize the need to do it because it was, um, it was difficult to get it to stick. And it wasn't anything particular about this team. It really didn't have anything to do with Mumbai. This is just the classic, you need to be consistent, set expectations and hold people accountable. And there's no magic to it. You just have to sit down. And some people call it micromanaging. I call it coaching. And it's part, if you take it to heart, it's actually a fun part of the job. And where you really see the fun come out is when I left um, this engagement, um, I don't want to over-exaggerate, but I'd say probably half of the reps put time on my calendar for about five minutes simply to thank me for taking the time to, to, to be that jerk at times, you know, to really push them and say, no, you got to get this done, get this done. And then they started to ultimately see the results. Um, I'll take a breath there to see if you have any questions or comments. Uh, I have a lot. Um, how... How do you, because I think everybody inherently understands that the number one thing you can do as a manager is coach, right? Like the number one thing to increase both short-term and long-term results is coaching, okay? But it's still the least, it's, it's still the smallest portion of any manager's time that they spend doing. Most managers spend, you know, are deal chasers, right? They, they, they hop in on deals. They try to close deals because ultimately that's what they know how to do, right? They were they, nine times out of 10, you know, the sad state of affairs of where we are right now is that sales, we get limited education. There's very few universities that teach sales. So we get out, it's the default profession, but there's a lot of training around how to do sales and techniques and whatever it is. Great. But then that sales rep excels. And usually they, uh, you know, the ones that excel, excel because they have that kind of, I don't say it factor, but there's something a little bit different about their view and how they approach things, right? And a lot of it has to do with work ethic and, 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 and relatability and those type of things. Like those are the ones that really excel. So what happens there is most companies look at those managers or those, those uh, reps that are excelling and they say, okay, great. Now you're going to become a manager. Now go teach everybody how to do what you do. And the challenge there, and you know, the whole diagram of like, you start, when you start with something, you're unconsciously incompetent, and then you move to consciously incompetent, then consciously, no, yeah, no, unconsciously incompetent, consciously incompetent, conscious, consciously competent, and then unconsciously competent, right? So the unconsciously competent, those are the ones that are just like the natural born sales professionals. And a lot of people promote those people to be managers. Now, those I find tend to be the worst managers because they can't tell you how they did what they did. They just are what they are. And for them to replicate that, it's, it's really hard to do. I want the manager that's consciously competent, the one who knows exactly. They might not be the A plus sales rep. But they were maybe the A minus B plus sales rep, but they could articulate their process, their structure, how they did what they did. And they know their metrics and their numbers, right? But the problem is, is that rarely happens. You really get the A rep that becomes the manager. And now you're told, go, manage. And so they go to do what they do, which is they, they coach towards deals. They jump on deals. They save the deal, that type of stuff. How do you, how, how do you force coaching? Right. And and I think there's a whole discussion about the, the numbers that we're pushing people towards monthly quotas and all that other stuff that I think is, is, a, is a much broader discussion here. But what are some things that you can do to almost to your point, not micromanage, but but force the, 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 the coaching component of what is so important in sales and in and, and management? Yeah, that's that's great. I think the first component you don't really control. You just do your best to filter for it. And you know, I'll use the sports um, analogy of you can't coach speed. Yeah. Some people have a built-in um, level of empathy 
for other people and want them to do better. I think one of the attributes, I should say, of the salesperson you were describing, and this is not a knock on that type of person. I know some of my best friends for years are the best salespeople I know, and they even make crappy managers. But part of it is they don't have that level of empathy for other people to get them to that same level. And that's fine. Keep keep making your you know, your quota like you do every year. And is there a test for that? Disc profile, Myers Briggs. Is there or is there, is there an indicator that we could look for of the of the people that give a shit versus the people that are just hey, I am what I am, and like you know what I mean? Is there a give a shit uh, <laughs> uh, thing there? You're the first person who's ever used the gas quotient on me. The give a shit quotient. I, I use that all the time. And when I use it, I make people try to get, no one's ever guessed what that, that acronym means. So I'm, just, I'm laughing over here. That's the, that's the first thing I look for is the give a shit quotient. And there, to me, there's no test. It's if you've got somebody in your organization already by observation and giving them some trial um, experiences, you, you're, you should be able to tell if that person has got at least that level of empathy and um, that interest level of going down that path. That's no guarantee on that one. If they're coming in from outside the organization, um, do your best in the interview. But I'm such a firm believer in finding people that are one degree of separation from you mm-hmm. and finding somebody you trust. Like, yep, they've got that DNA built into them. I haven't seen any quantitative tests yet. It's like, yep, this is going to nail it. Yeah. Um, yeah. The other, other part of that component, John, and this is probably the most important, is leading by example. And in this example, this customer out of the 26 reps, I took on as much as I could. It was, it was too much, frankly, but I did it anyways. I took on eight reps each quarter and did their one-on-one reviews. And those one-on-one reviews were pipeline opportunity forecast and the enablement. And every week, we would pull up emails. And it would take about four iterations before I got them to believe that this was the right approach. Mm-hmm. Um, part of it was um, some of them were freshers. It was their first in Indian term for first job ever. So there's a clean slate. And it's kind of like my golf game. If I had taken golf lessons my first time out, I would have been a much different golfer. I think a better golfer versus waiting to my thirties and taking the first lessons, which were unwinding all my bad habits before yeah. I got to the. So the kids that actually came in that had some lessons, um, some of them were good. Some of them were bad. And some of them, the, 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 the more experienced ones, sometimes they just stuck to, you no, know, I need to have this 10 paragraph email because this is what I learned. And it took a while to unwind that habit and prove it out. And this is where the empathy comes like in in place. It's like, okay, I'll tell you what, because we're using a really cool tool to let you A-B test, you use yours and we use, you know, John's. And after a hundred iterations, let's start looking at some statistics. And I hadn't seen one yet that, you know, proved wrong. The other challenge in this is uh, in a good way and a bad way, everybody in sales is now an expert and you can put out a blog or a vlog, or a YouTube. And I can't tell you the number of times that I got a gimmicky email. It's like, this is getting a 60% response rate. We need to use it. And I was like, well, I could put you on the street right now in front of the building with a spinning sign, and you're going to get a lot of attention. You're not going to sell a damn thing. So yeah. go ahead and put your gimmick email on that A-B test, mm-hmm. and we're going to have fun with it. <laughs> well, and I think that's the one thing that I've always, you know, so it's funny, I, I, I came up with this because I knew I, you know, as a trainer, if you will, I, I knew I didn't have the answer for every, for every question, right? I mean, how could you? So, so I always, and I, you know, I would try to do my thing as far as, hey, this is data, you know, here's da- backed by data, whatever it is. Um, but then inevitably people were, well, what about this approach? What about that approach? What about this approach? And my, my genuine is, I don't know, I haven't tried it. So, so split testing, became my go-to answer for almost anything, right? Because I'm not saying you're wrong. You know, I mean, the only time some, the only time I ever tell somebody not to try something, not to do something is when it's unethical or when it's like super sleazy, right? Like if you're going to lie to get that thing, then absolutely not. I don't give a shit how successful it is. Don't do it. Okay. But as long as it's ethical, as long as it's, 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 you know, you know, above the line, if you will, give it a shot, but test it, right. And test it thoughtfully so you have to have a baseline so that you, whatever your approach is let's use it use it use it use it i, I use about a hundred as the benchmark like you said there because that's you know first of all it makes the math easy second of all it's it's a it's a nice number to kind of say okay we tried it a hundred times now let's compare it to something else and let's try that and let's see who wins yep exactly. i mean that's really it and that's the, the whole idea of agile training which i can you know which we're we're kind of umbrella discussion here is how do you do more with less 
Well, if you turn your team into a split testing machine where any, like you pick up something new and you plug it into this equation and you, t- and you test it against something you know works, you, you actually don't need to invest in training. You don't need to have some jackass like me stand up in front of a room for, you know, for a full day and say, rah, rah, rah. You can you know, maybe use that as a baseline to kick things off. But afterwards, like, you know, I, I'm a, like, I, it's funny, you know, I'm doing a lot of thought on this, on Gong, right? The Gong uh, blog post. They had this one up selling to the C-suite. And it's this whole, the concept is you start with your nexus, right? When you start with your nexus of what do you believe that is polarizing in the sense of, you know, people either, yes, they agree with it based on your vision or absolutely not, right? So I've been thinking of like, what's the Jay Barrow's nexus? Like, what do we believe in? And there's a few, but like one of them I come down to is, I think methodologies are bullshit, right? And the whole idea that, that, because there are some people who are methodology driven, right? Like I'm a Miller Hyman guy, I'm a Taz guy and those type of things. And look, I think those are, those are great programs, right? For the right clients. But I'm just, I'm an agile sales guy. I, I believe that it doesn't matter what you're doing. If, if, you, if you are too locked into what you're doing, then you're going to get passed up pretty quick, right? So the whole idea of like iteration, right? How do you iterate? And that also saves you a bunch of money because then you, you develop that core, you know, with the team and, and you use the team from a training standpoint. So what are some of the ways that you've been able to create that, that learning environment, if you will, with your teams without having to go spend a bunch of money. Cause I think people try to throw technology and solutions at a lot of these problems. And that's not that, it, that no matter what, if you don't have a good learning environment already in place, then none of that stuff is going to make a difference. It's actually probably going to confuse the situation. Yeah. And this is where I had the advantage of the India culture, um, which is a very collaborative culture, a very sharing culture. Um, you've experienced, but for those of you who haven't, it's, a, it's just a really warm engendering culture in general, and that carries over to the, the business and certainly the sales environment. So I had a lot to leverage right there. But what a technique that I learned from a friend probably five years ago is, like you mentioned, like I'm constantly getting up there doing these weekly lunch and learns, trying to shove all of my knowledge and wisdom down your throat on a weekly basis, again, with the same voice. And what uh, she told me, she had, um, I think she had the brilliant idea on her own, put it in place, is have the lunch and learns, but have your team do it on a weekly basis. And as long as the subject matters was sales related, anything was fair game. And what I mean by that, you could have something as specific as a win review, a loss review, um, how here's the best email I ever wrote. But the best one I ever saw somebody would do actually was how do you handle stress in sales? best presentation on sales I think I've ever seen. And um, so you turn your team loose and uh, taking out your QBR and into quarter close, let's say you get 12 lunch and learns during each quarter. So you get roughly 50, no, not quite, but high 40 opportunities for other voices in your organization to give something that is a different perspective than your own. And what was really interesting this time was it was a, a competitive environment and that each time somebody did one, I kicked it off. I just said, I'm going to set the bar. Next person try to do just a little bit better. And each time it, it literally got better and better and better. And by the end of that last one, what was really interesting, the guy did a lunch and learn on, here's what I've learned on how to prospect. And without any coaching from me, he had the, the perfect email written out and how it worked. He's like, this is the call I made. This is how I answered the call. It's like, John, thank you for taking my call. Do you have a moment? Great. We, we don't know each other. This is Scott from One Window Partners, and the reason for my call is, boom. I mean, just perfect to a T. And that's where I didn't want to say, yeah, my job is over here. Technically, right. it was. <laughs> but I was like, I got them to that level now where they're on their own and they're going to be able to be productive with it. And that, that lunch and learn approach is one great example of doing it. This next approach actually did leverage technology, but it was brilliant. And I'll do it because tomorrow is the next round for the March Madness. Yeah. We did an elevator pitch contest, and it just worked out. We had 64 people participating. <laughs> so brackets worked out perfectly. And as we went through each round, so I pitted one person against the other. And with the, this is where the technology comes in. You can collaborate and people vote and who did the best elevator pitch and move to the next round. And then I had a second round so people could at least do it twice. So if you didn't win the first round, you went to the second bracket and you competed. And then the winner of that bracket and the top three of the first bracket did a final four. And each one of those rounds, I got this fever pitch higher and higher and higher each time to the point where once somebody recorded, everybody got in the room and listened to it. 
and they would talk about it and what they loved about it. And then they would go score it. And then it finally came down to the best four. And uh, lo and behold, the guy had been there the longest ultimately won it. Nice. All freshers in there as well. And it's just a great collaborative environment. So if you get the opportunity to use that matchup type of environment, you get multiple iterations. Everybody gets to see multiple pitches by multiple people. And that's another great way to pull everybody in together and, and build that level of experience. I love that. Yeah, I mean, I I actually I did something similar early in my career, and this is kind of a similar scenario in the sense that, you know, my first startup, we had no money. Like, we were 100% self-funded, right? And so, I mean, you know, when trainers would come in and tell me that training was going to cost 20000 10 20 I would legitimately laugh them out of my office. I'd be like, dude, I have $10 for training this year, okay? So, thanks for coming in, but... So I, what I actually used to do is I actually used to bring sales trainers in and have them give me their pitch and really like dig and ask questions about their philosophy and their approaches and their techniques and ask them to give me examples. And I mean, you like a million questions because what I was trying to do is extract what their training was. And then I'd be like, okay, thanks. Yes. Why don't you send me a proposal on that one? And all I would do is I'd, I'd go back on my whiteboard. I'd be like, all right, well, what components of that can I steal and, put, and bake into mine? Right. And so, you know, there's, by the way, and for those of you out there listening, sales trainers will literally tell you exactly what their approach is on a qual call. All you have to do is ask them and dig deeper and ask layering questions. And they will literally give you the training during the discovery call. And you just got to have half a brain on your shoulders to be able to take that and then think about how to implement it. Right. So that's one tip of how to do things cheap. The other one is, is what I did was similar to you. I didn't do a lunch and learn, but I did this on my Monday morning sales team meetings where we, and this kind of lines up with a bunch of stuff that you're talking about here, which is I would start with, all right, what's the challenge we're trying to address this week, everybody? Like what, what's something we're getting our ass kicked on, right? And somebody would raise their hand and be like, uh, you know, John, we're getting crushed on the pricing objection. Like every time I like that, we're just way more expensive than everybody else. So blah, right? And I only had about six reps reporting to me. So what I would say is, all right, who wants to own this? To your point. Who wants to own this? Delegate, right? One of them, you know, some rep, all right, I got it. And this wasn't like a huge thing that they had to do. This was literally light up your laptop, do a Google search on whatever that thing is, right? So how to handle pricing objection when you're selling a premium product, blah, right? And there'd be like, you know, five or six blog posts or, you know, something from some trainer, some idiot like me talking or whatever. And their goal was to go, to go research that for like an hour, come back to the team, pick something that they thought was good, okay? Like an approach that was, that was appropriate, bring it back to the team, tell us about it, do a little role play on it so we kind of got the kinks worked out or whatever. And then that week, everybody kept a notepad next to their desk when, when, in, on my team. And we would all write that week, we would write down at the top of the list, challenge equals pricing objection, approach equals, and then whatever that approach was, like, and write it out, right? And then it was a T-bar situation where it was a plus to minus. So every single time that a rep would ask a question, uh, I'm sorry, I, I, what I would tell them is like, look, whatever happens this week with everything else, just do whatever you're going to do. But when that thing happens, you have to, I want you to use that approach, okay? And then just add plus minus. It worked, it didn't work. It worked, it didn't work. It worked, it didn't work. And then what I would do is I would collect all the pieces of paper at the end of the week. And I would say, oh, oh I'm sorry. I would have the, the person who owned it collect the papers at the end of the week and then do a little report on how it worked and then present to the team the next Monday. Okay, everybody, we made 200 phone. We, we hit the pricing objection 200 times or whatever, like say a hundred times last week. And we got uh, 50 or like 35 positives and 65 negatives. Like, that's actually not a bad conversion ratio for that objection. So good. Next week, what do you want to focus on? And what it did was by delegating, I gave them some structure of how I wanted the format of how the, you know, of what they had to do, how they're going to present and what the results, but I didn't tell them exactly how to do it. And, and so I gave them some guidance. And it, what it did was, first of all, it created this continuous learning environment because every week we were iterating, we were picking something else, right, to compare it to. But also it showed me going back to your empathy um, the people that owned it that week 
you could tell what their approach was. You could tell if they gave a shit in the sense that did they just do a quick, they find the first thing on Google, pump it in there and tell everybody good luck. And then at the end of the week, or did they learn it? Did they really try to help us coach us towards using it? And then how active were they throughout the week in, in working with the other reps to make sure that that approach was being applied the right way? And then what type of insight did they gain at the end? Right. Those people, it was a, it was a, it was actually multi-purpose for me doing that. First of all, it delegated, so I didn't have to do everything. Second of all, we, it was iterative, so we kept improving. Tertiary was it got me to see which of my reps were management material, because there were some reps that were just like whatever, man, and they were like they just did it because they told them to do it, and then they would, but they, they would crush their numbers. But I, I could tell right up there, those are not going to be good coaches. Those are not going to be good managers. Whereas other reps who might not be as strong as far as their results, they gave a shit. They cared. They worked with the other reps to figure out exactly how to do it. I'm like, yep, all right. You're going to be my rock star, a rep, and I'm just going to give you a commission plan and tell you to go. You're going to be my next manager right there. So it was an easy way with no money to create an environment, learn, create an environment, drive results, and figure out management without even trying that hard. And, and back to that original question, where do you find the managers and how do you, uh, you know, on the cheap, get uh, additional support? We put in a mentorship program. So the five reps that were experienced, all of them uh, got the opportunity to be mentors. Uh, but the ones that particularly that expressed an interest to move up and particularly into management, this was their chance to prove themselves. And then through that, was able to see the empathy. Did they, uh, you know, did they understand the content themselves? Can they relate it to others? And can they make that person successful? So just putting in that mentorship help while we were grooming and growing the, uh, the management layer uh, helped in many aspects, including the enablement itself. So it was a big uh, tap on the shoulder environment. I like it. So, what are some of the foundational things you need to have? Like you come in, you came into an organization that, that was flying high, you know, no real sales process structure, investment in sales at all. And you had to start. What are some of the like absolutes you would say that, like, say you do have some money, right? But uh, we were talking before this to say, you know, I, you know, I personally believe that that people are throwing way too te- too much technology at a problem that is not really a technology problem; it's a people problem, um, and they're trying not they're trying to fix it with technology, which you can't do. And and I it, I think you say, share the same mentality here. But like, if you had a few bucks to spend, what would you to to grow a sales team? Before hiring 26 people, before, you know, that type of stuff, what, what would those core things be? So, you know, the, something like Salesforce is going to be obvious. You need a system record. But um, ancillary to that, and this was mostly um, outbound. And so it really played to, and I'll throw out two companies that we were using outreach, but if you don't, I don't want to be plugging a company, so sales off. But mm-hmm. some system that allows you to build in that regular cadence and to our point about doing that split testing. Um, being able to to leverage a platform that gives you that um, that dynamic feedback and improve, um, not just get the emails out on a timely basis, not just make the calls on a timely basis, but gauge those results and improve the process. I think that is absolutely critical. And hand in hand to that, you've got to have good data. Now, I've been bat- I've been burned for 30 years by data providers claiming the world, um, but it has improved. Um, two that I'll put out there that we analyzed were Zoom Info and Lead IQ. Yeah, Lean IQ is one of our favorites, yeah. Yeah, and they both came in um, very comparable. I'll leave it at that. And um, and then you, you wouldn't put this in necessarily right up front, but I'd get it in pretty soon as you develop content and avoid the shoulder tapping is something like a guru um, or high spot. Yep. And those are sales asset management platforms. So whether you're residing um, in your web, um, Salesforce, or in Slack, Instead of go tapping somebody on the shoulder, hey, how do you do this? What is this? Where would I find it? Type it in. There it is. Pops up. Makes you an expert um, immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I'm missing another uh, component I wanted to mention. So I have the outreach, the data. Oh, and then we've talked about it before. Something like a work ramp or saleshood, a sales enablement platform. Um, that immediately extends your reach. It makes it more collaborative. It gets everybody participating and sets the expectation level that when we roll the next iteration out, it's going to be at this level of participation. Mm-hmm. And, um, it really facilitates um, a faster onboarding and greater enablement over time. Um, outside of that, I'm with you. I keep the sales stack as thin as possible. Yeah. I, I think those those four tech types of technology, if you will, are, are definitely the, the, the four horsemen, if you will. 
um, to then build off of after that. But, um, you know, and the, and the reason I like some of those platforms too, you know, specifically, you know, I'm a, I'm a sales loft fan. Um, they actually have a lot of the technologies plug into. So I actually almost use, um, it's funny, I use sales loft right now as my uh, barometer for what other technologies I should look at because they have a much bigger team than I do. And they go assess all the different technologies that plug into their platform. And uh, like, once they identify, I'm like, Oh, let me go now. Took a look at that company, see what they do. Right. So it's like, you guys are smarter than me. I'm going to go follow the, follow them. Right. Um, and you know, the beauty is there's so many, it's like, once there's a, if there's a paid tool out there, there's almost always a free tool out there that does 75% of what that paid tool does. You know what I mean? So like, I'll give you, you know, for looking for triggers, stuff like that. Right. I used to like be a huge proponent of inside view and one source and all those other, which I, I still am, but they're expensive. You know what I mean? Like, like, I don't know, you know, so, so Owler, like I love Owler it's free and it gives you most of what they, you know what I mean? Um, you know, there's, there's data provided. Yes, there's Zoom and, and all those other tools. But then there's stuff there where you can get like five or 10 free credits a day of, you know, direct line email addresses and those type of things. And, and so you can kind of cobble together. But, but really, once you have the money, if you, have, if you get to the point where you have a few bucks to spend, stepping up and actually doing it the right way and, I, and, and sooner rather than later. So you're not, I mean, you talk about reverse engineering uh, sales rep skills, right? A lot of times, once you get into a rat's nest of tech and, and I actually have a business model out there that I think could make millions, which is a, a, a SaaS tech assessment of let's take your sales process. Let's figure out whatever your sales process is. Let's look, let's do an assessment of every technology that you've invested in and figure out where all the overlaps are and all that other stuff. And then come in and give you a recommendation of, okay, you should get rid of these. You should invest in these. And it's going to save you, you know, 50% of what you're spending right now. It's going to make you 10 times more productive. Like if somebody had like a tech stack assessment for sales teams, I think they would print money. I, I believe it. Um, you know, like when I started this consultancy, um, I have a much smarter um, partner and uh, he's the one I've gone to literally for years. If a new technology popped up, I'd give him a call. What is this? Do I need it? <laughs> I, got, I, got the, I got the same, I got a buddy of mine is the same person for me. <laughs> I'd put him in front of a client for three weeks. He'd spit out. Yep. You don't need this, this, and this add these couple and you're good to go. Yeah, oh. I believe it. Cool. So how, let's talk, um, the, the, the growth factor here, like, what do you, how do you, how do you maintain quality as you grow? Like, so, so, and I, and I'm, when I, and I position this as quality of reps, quality of approach, quality of message, quality, how do you maintain that as you scale a company, right? Cause the, in the, in the context here is, you know, it's kind of easy when you have a team of five, six, seven reps, right? Cause you can almost kind of force it. Right. And, and whatever, and everybody's usually bought in But then once you get to 20, 30, 40, 50 reps, you start losing control. Yeah. And that's where I see people misappropriate technology because what happens is they, they want to control the message. Like, so for instance, they, they invest in a sales loft or an outreach and then they take their templates and they give them to the reps and say, okay, literally push play. I don't want no creativity here. I want you to, and that's, that's, that's bad, right? So too much creativity for people and because that's un, unscalable. Um, but full-blown templates, and this is exactly what to say, that, that takes a human element and out of it, and what's the point? So how do you, what's your approach to maintaining quality um, while scaling without over-generalizing uh, or over-automating the processes? You mentioned one of them, and it's messaging. Now, that term is pretty broad, so I'll make a distinction. I'm not talking pure marketing messaging to go build branding and whatnot. When I say messaging, it's a consistent approach to identify pain points, why they're worth solving, what a customer gets out of it from the product view, from the market view, marketing view, and the sales point of view, so that everything's consistent throughout. And that's the first thing I did with this client. We built out a framework um, that, you know, frankly, I'd picked up over the years and, and used other folks um, to get to that point. But it's a very simple, straightforward framework where you identify the typical pain points or the opportunities, why it sucks to have those pain points. But if you get to a certain state, what are the outcomes that are going to be good for that client? And then what's required to get there? And then that required 
uh, world is hopefully where your differentiators lie and what sets you apart from everybody else. And if you take that and then you spread that into everything else you do from your prospecting all the way to the time you close, that more than anything will help build consistency as you add numbers to your team. Um, then beyond that, I just use a simple model that uh, I don't think these two gentlemen knew that they were mentoring me during my career, but I used them as mentors, just watch, listen, and learn. And as different as they were in personality and styles, I did five common things um, to build and scale their teams. That was hire the best you can find and afford, enable the hell out of them on an ongoing basis, motivate them, mentor, and retain them, build reasonable but not bureaucratic processes, a great sales culture, and fit into a company culture. And then I've done that in North America, Asia, Europe. Again, go through my whole background in sales leadership. That model has worked for me time and time again. And so those first two of hiring the best people you can find them for, invest all the time, all the resources that you possibly can to get the best people in the door and minimize your mistakes in hiring because that's the most costly. I know it goes without saying, but nobody ever gets that perfect. Yeah. And it's worth uh, spending the time there. And then really, really thinking through your goals and objectives on your onboarding and your enablement program before you build them out. You know, what's really needed here? And in this case, again, I needed soup to nuts. I needed to teach them about the market they were selling into, all of the product specifics. And it was a technical sale, so that was a long deep dive. And then you boil it all the way down to skills. Again, these were fresh kids. I needed to spend an inordinate amount of time on the sales skills. Walking into that and then realizing it during the course of the process would have been a disaster. Stepping back and saying, here's the profile of people that we have. Here's my starting point. Here's my end point. And let me build out what I call a sales university to get there. And then everything I need to support that, that is a critical function um, to get that enablement. And then with that, the messaging, the right people, and then that support structure to get them enabled and productive. I think more than anything, that'll give you con the consistency. And then, of course, you build in the, the processes and the, the technologies needed to, to enhance that. So one of the last questions I have, it kind of dovetails into that product knowledge, right? You had a very technical sale in, those, in this last company that you were working with. Um, what's your thought process on, on the onboarding as it relates to product knowledge? And, and the reason I ask is because my philosophy, or I've always said that almost the more you know, the worse you're going to sell. Right. Because if you if you know too much, like if, so what I see is so many companies, they they focus on on boarding, they focus on product knowledge. Right. They focus on this is exactly what our product does. This is. What and so when kids get out into the, like now they have to make some phone calls that that's what they have. So that's what they do. They just regurgitate what the presentation is. They press play on the demos. They tell you every feature function that they can because that's what they got badged on. Whereas I'm like, look, I could probably sell, I could prospect better than 95% of sales reps out there for any single solution that I could sell because all I got to do is maybe read a case study or two, look at the website and come up with a value proposition to get somebody to say, oh, that's pretty interesting. And then ask a few questions and say, yeah, you know what? Let me get out of the way, put the smart kid in here to get the solutions engineer to talk you through this. So how, how do you balance product knowledge, which is necessary, with the ability to sell effectively and keep it simple, stupid? Yeah, it's, uh, it's really tricky because I could give you multiple examples on a lot of the, um, I'll call them kids on this team, had engineering backgrounds. Sure. So they cooked to understand the product pretty quickly, um, but the handful that really excelled um, on their own just had innate ability to communicate with customers. And we certainly were refining that capability once we put on all these structures, but they just had that ability to understand there's a customer problem out there um, let me qualify if there's something we can do to help and go through a process where they'll invest in our solution. Mm -hmm. And what I like about product training is, like you said, number one, you have to get there. But what I want more than anything is I want that level of confidence. I want my reps to know that when they're on the phone, they actually know more than the person on the other side of the phone. Not that you have to prove it, but have that confidence when you get on the call. You're not going to get tripped up. And if you do happen to hit a roadblock, it's okay. Say, you know what? That's something I haven't come across. Let me go find out for you. Well, let me let me interrupt. I'm sorry, but 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 if you're selling to like if you're a sales rep selling to like I, I work here's an example. I work with a lot of BI companies, right? Where they sell yeah. a BI tool to analysts. Yeah. Those analysts, that, that sales rep will never know more about the technology than those analysts will. 
So how do you how do you break that? You know what I mean? Like when you're selling a super technical solution to a very technical buyer and you're a sales rep that did not go to school for that. So let's take the engineers out of the equation here, because I think if you're an engineer, that's why sales engineers are sales engineers, because they're sales engineers. They're not sales reps. Right. They need a sales rep to help them know when to shut up and actually sell something. But when you're a sales rep coming into a situation where you, you are selling to somebody who's way more knowledgeable about your products than you are, how do you, how do you combat that? Yeah, I think part of it is targeting who you're going to prospect to, for starters. Because if you get that kind of person, if you get on with a hardcore developer, number one, they typically don't want to be sold to. And you know that right up front. Yeah. And if you, if you do get time from them, they're probably going to play stump the chump. And then just in this cycle that you're just completely wasting your time. So you go through an assessment through the things that you teach is, hey, am I talking to somebody that can um, point me to the right direction of somebody who cares about this specific problem? By that, I mean, if you've got really good BI, you're going to be able to impact your business in these manners. Who's the person who cares about that? Who should I be talking to? Can you sponsor me to talk to that person? And I promise not to waste your time and pretend I know more than you in this specific realm. Um, but when they do get to that person, uh, I do want that level of confidence that you know they know their solution is going to perform the way they're going to say it's going to perform. It's going to achieve the results um, that it's going to. And I've worked, obviously, with a lot of tech companies. Predominantly, these CEOs are the founders and they're engineers. And they will lean towards, I want you to open a call with a demo. And I absolutely refuse to go down that path. And if that's the model, it's like, I am not the right guy for you. Because if you're going in leading with the demo, you're not asking good questions to understand if they have a problem, can you solve the problem? And if so, what's that going to take? And so in this case, I said, we're going to do demo certification, but it's going to be done. And I had my pre-sales manager lead this as I get them to the point where we're talking about business problems and value of solving. It. Then we'll show them what we've got. Right. And so I think that in part answers your question, get to the right person. And then leverage the knowledge. And then when you do have that stump and chump type of call and you need to pull them in, get the pre-sales guy in there, but only if it's qualified and the timing is right. That's why I always say that that reps who rely too companies and reps who rely too early on demos or try to force the demo too early without the qualification, they're they're just lazy. And, and what they're saying there, and like especially reps, and I, any any rep who's listening out there, if you are if your goal or your managers are telling you, doesn't matter, show them a demo as fast as possible. What they are telling you and what you are telling yourself is that you don't matter. As a sales professional, you don't matter. Because if all your job is, is if your product is that fucking cool, that all the client has to do is see it. And what you do is you press play on that demo for 30 minutes and they buy why in the world would I pay somebody 50, 60, 70, $100,000 a year all in to do that? All you're saying, that's a, it's the laziest way of selling I've, I've seen. And it's the most dangerous way of selling, in my, my opinion, because, like, again, what's the point? Like, I'll just hire marketers to blast out demos to every one of our target audiences. And, and hopefully, you know, and once they see it, they're going to love it. And I'll just give free trials to every single person that fits that profile and LinkedIn. And, and who cares? You know what I mean? Like, what's the point of selling? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And the other thing is, uh, I've found over the years is your A reps will use, I'll throw a statistic out there, but just to make a point, they'll use about 5% of your pre-sales team. Your C reps are going to use about 90 of it. All of it. <laughs> and that was me early in my career. I when I when I didn't know what I was talking about, I used engineers like the you know, like the day is long. I'd be like, "Yep, sure, no problem." And now, I mean, I, I don't sell an engineering type product, but now it would be it would be after so qualified. It would have to be so far down the sales process for me to bring in a, an expert that that you know it, it, it would have, it would be a closing call basically. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Awesome, Scott. I think we. I mean, I think the the scale and growth of teams is a topic we could talk about forever. But uh, I know uh, you got some, you know, some new things coming up here. What? What? How can people follow you? Like, what? What's the best way to get in touch with you? And, and what are some of the new challenges do you have coming up here that should, people should be paying attention to? Yeah, I'm looking at a few things. Uh, one actually would be going full time for uh, a particular company. Uh, one is I we talked about before the call. My wife's company. She's CEO of a software company and starting a foundation to help um, the workers that are displaced by technologies. Um, that's been an interesting project. And then uh, you know I've been doing the consulting, and if uh, if and when can interesting opportunities come up, um, you know, we'll take a look at that as well. You can find me at Scott at One Window O N E Window dot com. 
and of course on LinkedIn. So um, if anybody's interested in this topic in general, if you're interested in topic talking about um, growing a sales team in India specifically, we've got a lot of fresh muscles on that. And I think the, the, um, the ceiling is very high for that market. And I uh, would love to talk about people if they have any interest there as well. Love it. Cool. Scott, I appreciate you coming on board here and, and wish you luck in your, your new endeavors here, but definitely recommend anybody take a look at Scott, what he's doing, because a lot of lot of experience in this space. And, and, and like I said, we could probably have this conversation for a day or two if you wanted. But uh, anyways, for those of you out there listening, as always, go make somebody smile today. There's too much negativity out in today's world. Uh, if there's nothing else you do, if you can put a smile on somebody's face, then you've done it. You've had a great day. So uh good luck out there let me know if you need any help feel free to get in touch and make it a great week all right make it happen everybody thanks scott thank you take care everybody